Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. We say this all the time, but we mean it all the time. We believe you're going to love this guest, John Noltner. Uh, our conversation with him was just uh, something that uh, we felt really good about. We, I think we've got a lot of similar goals, a lot of similar um, philosophies about, about life and about human beings and relationships and listening. And he um, has been on this journey that we, we find just to be incredible and, and uh, kind of envious about that he got to meet so many in this book that we're going to be talking about. Uh, he's met so many wonderful people who have some wise and, and important things to say about life and about, about relationships and about the state of the world today. So uh, we're glad you're with us. We hope you love this, um, this conversation very much. Here's his bio. He was frustrated with an increasingly polarized society. He's an award-winning photographer, and he set out on a road trip across the United States to rediscover the common humanity that connects us by asking people the simple question, what does peace mean to you? Through captivating photography and real-world stories, Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America, offers a uniquely human and accessible approach to conversations about the social issues that most challenge us today, creating a roadmap to a more peaceful future. John Noltner is a gifted storyteller and photographer who has worked on four continents, gathering accounts of human courage, grace, and resilience. His work has appeared in National Geographic Traveler, Forbes, Midwest Living, and the New York Daily News. His series, A Piece of My Mind, has been produced as two award-winning books and four exhibits that travel the country for presentations such as the Nobel Peace Prize Forum, Everyday Democracy, the National Civil Rights Museum, and the Gandhi King Conference on Nonviolence. John and his wife Karen and their dog Bailey have pulled up their anchor in Bloomington, Minnesota and taken their life on the road full-time in search of stories of hope, healing, and transformation. Enjoy our conversation with John. We are privileged to have this conversation with you on the Someone to Tell the Two podcast today. So welcome, John. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tom. I'm really glad to be with you. So we'd like to start today by talking in greater depth about your reasons for wanting to write this book. So what compelled you to do it? Yeah, sure. You know, I have spent my career as a freelance photographer, so I have I have photographed for national magazines and Fortune 500 companies for, for a couple of decades. Um, back around 2009, uh, I found that there were two things going on in my life. And the first was that I was frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue. I was I was concerned about all the things that can ask us to look at what separate us in life, whether it's politics, ethnicity, religion, class, you know, you name it. If you've got all the hot you, button issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the hot button issues. If you choose to go through life dividing, you've got all sorts of tools at your disposal. But I was curious if there was something I could do with my photography and storytelling instead to sort of amplify and elevate those things that connect us, to remember what we share in common. And so as, as that was going on, 
And by the way, I, I don't think it's gotten better in the last 12 years mm-hmm. <laughs> since I started. Um, but at that at that time in 2008, 2009, the second thing that happened is, is I like to say the economy handed me some free time. You know, and the the recession. That's the um, silver lining. That's that's a creative way to put it. (laughs) So I had been really restless to do some big personal project, but A, I didn't know what that would look like. And B, when you're a freelancer, you're accustomed to saying yes every time the phone rings. You know, I was not going to turn down paying work to go pursue something else. But when this space opened up in my schedule, when the paying work sort of went away on its own, um, you know, this is what I did with this with this free time. And it started out really small with, with just a single interview, but it continued to grow uh, until it sort of sucked me in and became my life's work, I guess. Before we even hit record, you had mentioned that you are in an RV. You live out of an RV. Was that also part of this process? That's something we hadn't in our research even learned about. Oh, yeah. So uh, almost a year ago, my wife, Karen, and I decided to sell our home of 20 years in Bloomington, Minnesota and live smaller and hit the road. And the pandemic was a really weird time to do that. But (laughs) we uh, a couple of things happened. A, we realized that we could be just as safe isolating and and being cautious living in an RV as we could in a uh, in a a real house. But also, um, there were so many stories that I felt needed to be told in our country. There was so much division around so many issues. And the only way I knew how to uh, engage with that, the only way I knew how to approach that was being on the road and talking to people face to face. So back back pre pandemic, um, we actually had this plan because I was doing so much programming on the road with a piece of my mind, moving exhibits and workshops around the country that Karen and I were apart for 180 plus days that year. Um, that's not why we got married. You know, we like each other. We wanted to spend some time together. But um, so we thought we would sell the house, live in an RV and follow my programming around from from state to state. Well, the pandemic shut down all of that programming. So we had to sort of scratch our heads for a little bit to figure out what was next. But we decided we could use that time instead to gather new content, gather new stories. And so that's when we that's when we started living in a little rolling box. And mm-hmm. so far, we still like each other. So it's going well. So have you seen the movie Nomadland? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. And uh, and there are a lot of truths in that movie. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, we're not living in a van. We have a 34 foot trailer, so we have a little bit more space. Um, but um, yeah, there are challenges to being on the road, but they're challenges we we gratefully accept. So this is where we uh, we are excited to really get a deep dive into the conversation about the book. And just tell us a little bit about the process of finding people to interview and their their rich stories and how does, how did that process work? And, and uh, we just love to hear about some of the most notable stories. It is um, a journey of discovery. I've got this network of people that I know around the country, journalists and creative people and activists and, and uh, community leaders. There's also quite a bit of research that's involved in sort of digging into issues and finding out who can speak uh, appropriately about different issues. And then there's some serendipity involved. And so I'll, I'll give you examples of each one. So 
I like to try to find an ally in a community. When I was going to Durham, North Carolina, one of my first stops, um, I have a journalist friend. His name is Barry Yeoman, who's who's super um, talented. He's a great writer. He has a deep love for his community as well as uh, justice issues. And so I knew I could reach out to Barry and explain to him what, well, A, have a free couch to stay on. Uh, <laughs> so that was a benefit. Um, but B, he has this deep knowledge of the community. And so I could explain to Barry what it was I was interested in um, and, and ask him who he knew in the community who would be willing to talk to those issues. And so Barry could connect me. And I try to have a Barry almost everywhere I go that can connect me deeply into a community and introduce me to people. Um, the second one, research. You know, I, as a photographer, some of this is visually driven too on my journey. And so I knew I wanted to photograph shrimp boats in <laughs> southern Louisiana because I had seen the movie Forrest Gump and I thought those nets were beautiful that hang off the side. So I thought, well, why couldn't I talk to a shrimp fisherman? I made a call to a restaurant down in Louisiana and asked who they knew that was a shrimp fisherman. Turned out they bought all of their stuff from a big company in, you know, north of there. But they said, oh, we know a guy who is a lawyer who's working with shrimpers on a class action lawsuit against BP. I bet we could find somebody to introduce you there. So I reached out to that lawyer who reached out to a shrimp fisherman and I met Kenny Terrio. You know, and so so it's this process of knocking on doors until you see what what will open. And then third, um, sometimes serendipity. I was going down to Alabama and the day before my interview, which was already scheduled, uh, that interview canceled. And so I literally threw it out to social media and I said, does anybody know anybody in Alabama I can talk to? Uh, and someone said, you ought to look up a woman named Joanne Bland in Selma. Um, and as it turns out, Joanne had marched from Selma to Montgomery with Dr. King when she was 11 years old. I, mm. I, I just Googled her phone number. I found it and I called her and said, hey, what are the chances you have, you know, four hours free tomorrow? And she said, sure, come on over. Mm. You know, so it's this it's this wandering process um, that's led by curiosity and led by humanity and led by an interest in um, how we can navigate some of these issues a little better. I'm reminded of a statement. I think it was the founder of McDonald's who said that luck is a dividend of sweat. The more you sweat, the luckier you get. And oh, it sounds I love like there's that. yeah, there sounds like there's a there's a good mix between just grinding it out, but then also we we love the word that you use there, serendipitous, that mm -hmm. things just fall into place as they're supposed to if you just are open to it. You keep showing up. You keep putting yourself out there, and you open yourself up to possibilities. And some pretty remarkable things can happen. Which sounds as if that's what you've done. And uh, we're pretty impressed by that. Uh, we know that that's a hard thing to do. But because of your previous career and, you know, the, the work that you've done in journalism and photojournalism, we, we know that you've had a kind of a leg up on that, uh, being able to do that and being more comfortable. But can you tell us about some ways in which this process, uh, writing a book, kind of propelled you outside your comfort zone? Uh, where, you know, places where you may have been stretched and how that stretching feels, because that can be hard uh, sometimes and, un and uncomfortable. And uh, we'd love to hear, you know, your perspective on that and how you kind of how you how you face that. We're all really familiar with that stretching and that discomfort 
comfort if we go to the gym and we want to, you know, we want to exercise a little bit, we we have to push ourselves, we have to stretch, we have to get uncomfortable. And we do that in the physical world, but we're not always so readily willing to do that in sort of the social and emotional world. I would say that in this process, I've I've continually pushed my own boundaries. You know, I've continually uh, gone into subjects where I might be less informed, where I have less personal experience. I've, in, I've engaged in conversations where I may not be an expert, but I go in with curiosity and I have established a long track record of realizing the benefits from that. I've gained an experience in understanding that if I make myself vulnerable, that if I expose myself to some of these uncomfortable situations that uh, I do learn and I do grow. And I think really that's one of the benefits of maybe there aren't a lot, but it's one of the benefits of aging, right? (laughs) Is that you gain that experience and you understand that if I push myself a little bit more, if I go into this new territory, if I engage with these different ideas, it's okay. So some of the, some of the ways that I have really challenged myself is, is by walking into uncertainty. You know, this entire project has been uncertain in how it was going to unfold, in how it might eventually sustain us, in how it was, it was going to uh, continue to grow. Um, I've challenged myself by encountering new ideas, you know, when I when I interviewed Joanne Bland, who I just mentioned uh, in Selma, Alabama, I interviewed her in her living room 12 days after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there was this very real tension and frustration in the room. And here I am, a middle aged white guy from up north sitting with a civil rights icon in her living room as she is frustrated and concerned that we have not yet finished the work that she started as a young girl. You know, that can be an uncomfortable space for a middle-aged white guy from up north to be in, but, and not because of anything Joanne did, but just because of the reality and the dynamics of what's going on in our country around race. But when you're willing to sit with that and when you're willing to listen, that's where there's learning that can happen. And, And I guess in my process of going outside of my comfort zone, I have just come to realize that there are so many different experiences in this world and that there's beauty and wisdom in all of it, if I can take the time to hear it. You use the phrase making yourself vulnerable. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think it's really important in these conversations that I don't that I don't enter into them in a clinical sense or a professional sense where I've got my list of questions and I'm ticking them off and I'm asking them in sort of a a objective and cold fashion. You know, these, these conversations for me come down to a really human exchange. And part of that exchange is being willing to admit that I don't know everything, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to phrase a question in such a way that I recognize I might not be seeing the whole picture to ask that question gently and to, to be willing to have the other person say, I'm not sure that's quite the issue. Uh, Maybe it's this and to be willing to do that self-examination and that self-reflection to admit that they're probably, or maybe right. You know, and so I think that vulnerability, I can't expect that other person that I'm talking to, to be vulnerable if I'm not also vulnerable myself. And so that's just become a part of my process in conversations. And that means every once in a while looking like an idiot, 
not not on purpose, but owning it when I do uh, and being willing to acknowledge that that I have my own biases, I have my own blind spots, and that sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. When's the appropriate time, though, to be vulnerable? Because I'm thinking of someone who has previously been on someone to tell his listening team. And at one point, uh, this this uh, person was in a listening meeting with some African-Americans, and he happens to be white. And they were describing their experiences as African-Americans growing up in America. And he responded, oh, I, I felt that way or I've done that, too. And it was not the, the appropriate time. And it drew attention back on himself as opposed to truly listening. And I think we've noticed a lot of people do that. And and we, we found that there is an appropriate time to be vulnerable. But it's always, we say in a lot of our training work, that it's always about the other person in a listening interaction. And so if you're, uh, if you're being vulnerable and drawing attention away from that other person, then that's probably not the appropriate time. Yeah. 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 You're, you're absolutely right. We, we need to decenter ourselves in that process. If we intend to do intentional listening, if we intend to do deep listening, it is about, centering on that other person. And I've certainly made that same mistake myself when I was interviewing Fred and Judy Barron, who are Holocaust survivors. They were in Bergen-Belsen together. And I thought in my mind that we were going to make a connection when I could share with them that I had been to Dachau, um, another concentration camp, this one in in the south of Germany. Um, But Judy was visibly disturbed by that, that comment. And I and and when I talk about owning that, I had to then say, hang on, something just shifted in the room. Help me understand what just happened. And Judy went on to talk about the fact that she had gone back and visited a concentration camp, you know, 20 years ago after she uh, had lived much of her life in the United States. And she was appalled and distraught by the way that concentration camp had been turned into what she thought was a tourist attraction and didn't honor the pain and the suffering that had happened there. And I have to, I had to admit that that was the first time I had seen these memorials as anything but honoring and could start to understand that it also caused someone like her pain. I had to sort of pivot at that point, and that allowed me to return the focus back to her. So this is not necessarily a hard and fast science about how we engage with one another around sensitive issues, but it's a really subtle and human experience that you have to be willing to tune into and be sensitive to in the conversation. You must have been really confident in who you are in that moment just to be able to admit that. And I think we've used the phrase that sometimes a simple sorry will do. Just Mm -hmm. owning the fact that maybe in that listening interaction, maybe I didn't get it right or I took it in the direction that it shouldn't have gone. And and I did draw the attention away from the other other person and and, uh, it was not the appropriate time to do so. And I think just owning it, saying I'm sorry that it took this other direction, and I'd like to move it in in a healthier direction forward. Yeah, and I don't know even if it's confidence uh, with who I am as much as it is a, a desire not to do harm. 
you know, if if the goal of this project is to build healing and build connection, I mean, run a statistical uh, chart and eventually in some of these conversations, you're going to stumble and you're going to do it poorly just because we're all human and that happens. But not wanting to do harm, if the goal is to do good, when you see that perhaps you've missed the mark, uh, you have to own that. And you have to be you have to be willing to address it. And I think if we try to sort of sweep it aside, uh, we run the risk of doing more harm. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. We love stories and we think that they can be incredibly powerful and and reach people in ways that, that many other means cannot. In the introduction uh, to your book, you describe a visit that you had with, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Hashim Garrett. Yeah, Hashim Garrett, right. Who, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York. You wrote this about him. You wrote that, and then he said, a few words that have stayed with me to this day. I want to love those who haven't shown me love. I want to be kind to those who may not have deserved my kindness. And there's the key. It's easy to love the lovable. It's easy to be kind to the ones who treat you well. It's nice to be nice when others are nice. What would you like to say about that and that, that story and, and what you learned from him? Well, let me just give you a little bit of background on Hashim. You know, basically, he he grew up as a young kid in Brooklyn, and he he was in a difficult neighborhood. He was picked on a lot, and he was often afraid, he said. And he realized at one point that maybe these people who were tormenting him would would back off a little bit if he befriended his tormentors. You know, and so he did that, and that worked out okay for a little bit, but but then as they got a little older, they started skipping school. They started robbing convenience stores. They started hurting other people. And, you know, he found himself in a gang. This was what the community developed into. You know, for a while, he liked that. He said, when I was good, nobody knew my name. But when I was bad, everyone knew who I was. And, and he said there was a power, sort of an intoxicating power in that, that he didn't have to fear anymore because he was feared. But eventually when he was 15, he was shot and paralyzed from the waist down. And of course, as he wondered if he was ever going to walk again, if he was ever going to actually live, he realized that he didn't want to be feared, but he wanted to be loved. You know, and that's, that's then when he said this quote that I want to love those who haven't shown me love. And I want to be kind to those who may not have deserved my kindness. 
you know, again, this is far outside of my own experience, but in sitting and spending time with Hashim, I can start to understand, I can start to hear his struggle. I can start to hear the challenges that he's had. And certainly my experience hasn't been the same, but I have felt afraid. I have felt um picked on at times in my life. And so even though we haven't had the same path, there are experiences that I can start to extrapolate. You know, I can, I can create empathy and compassion in my own life uh, based on whatever my experience has been and begin to hear his story a little bit more deeply. When he says that he chose love, there's another woman I interviewed her name was Angela Bates and she she talked about some of her life's frustrations but then also said that she realized she had a choice about how she was going to engage with the world around her. And I think really we all have that choice on a daily basis as we go through life and we we can't always choose what happens to us but we absolutely can choose how we respond to it. You know, and so we have to make a decision about how we're going to craft our path, how we're going to choose our day to day life. And we can do that either by tearing other people down or we can do that by building other people up. These stories of people like Hashim, who was uh, grievously wronged, right? He was shot and paralyzed from the waist down, but he decided to forgive these people. He said, because if 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 I'm going to expect people to forgive me for my faults, then I have to be able to forgive them for their faults. And he he himself had been in that very same position of those people who wronged him at various points in his life. And so he's he's trying to create that space where he can choose more antagonism or he he can choose healing. And I think when we choose healing, it not only heals the other person, but it comes back around and it heals us as well. Do you still maintain a connection with any people like Hashim? Yeah, yeah, quite a few of them. In fact, I just um, I, I sent a, a message to Hashim just the other day because I had shared one of his ther- stories out on social media. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, the people who have appeared in my books, probably 30 or 40 percent of them, I'm in pretty regular communication with. I mean, maybe it's just social media, but um, if I have an exhibit in in the the neighborhood of where these people live and by neighborhood i mean within a three or four hour drive um i'll reach out to them and see if we can get together uh so some of these folks have become good friends and that's um that's an unexpected reward of doing this work it brings us back to something that occurred in your in your book and you were very vulnerable about about it It was the loss of your mom and we're very mm. sorry about that. And and you said, I think, that it pulled back a curtain to reveal the basic building blocks of relationships. In other words, it reminded you of what is most valuable, necessary, essential in life, and that's relationships. So what happened when my mom died? It, it all happened pretty quickly. She was diagnosed and was gone within 30 days uh, of her cancer diagnosis. Um, I had been running 100 miles an hour for my assignment work. And all of those things felt really important and uh, commanded my time. And and uh, but when my mom got sick, those other things seemed pretty unimportant. And we realized that everything else could stop, and we could just focus on her care and her needs for a while while she was still around. And I think 
for me, the building blocks of personal relationship are really similar to the building blocks of community relationship. Uh, they go hand in hand. And those things are to, to, to slow down and listen deeply. You know, we've talked about that a little bit already. To be willing to challenge our own expectations, take ourselves out of the spotlight. And three, to just continue showing up to just be present at the table. You know, there were a lot of things that we didn't really understand about how to walk with somebody in their final days of life. Uh, you know, that's a difficult journey and it's not a journey that we were well practiced at, but we realized that just showing up, even if you don't know what to do, even if you don't know what to say, but being present and knowing that you'll be present again tomorrow and whatever comes that you will be there. Those are the things that build relationship. And those are the things that I think can build um, community and society and sort of that beloved community that Dr. King talks about. You use the phrase right there, at the table, and, and to stay at the table. I think that was probably one of the stories that stuck with me the most. Could you recount that story in particular? And especially this week as we're recording, it's in light of September 11th, and we do a lot of reflecting on where we are as a society and a world and in terms of peace and what, what can we learn from that story in particular about staying at the table? You know, this is a great example of how each of these encounters, each of these engagements has sort of given me a takeaway lesson and something that we can use in our day-to-day -day lives. And you're, you're talking about the story of Maham Khan, who I met at Harper college in Palatine, Illinois. And, um, and when we met there, she was she was talking about when she first started college as a student there. And she, uh, Maham is Muslim, uh, but her faith was pretty private. She didn't talk about it much. She didn't wear her job. And so, so visually, you know, you might walk past her, not know if she's Muslim or not. But when she went to college, she realized that she wanted to meet new friends. She wanted to become engaged in organizations to fill out her, her resume and uh, do all the things we do when we go to college. So she decided to join the Muslim Student Association. And she went to the first meeting and somehow she got elected president. Um, <laughs> so she was a little outside of her comfort zone, but she thought, OK, I can I can do this. You know, we'll we'll have pizza on Tuesdays. We'll study Quranic verses on Thursdays. How hard could this be? Well, that year was 2001. And, you know, a few days later, 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden she was way outside of her comfort zone. And she, you know, all of a sudden she's at the head of this organization. That's the, the focus of this misunderstanding and mistrust and, and, and frustration and angst. And she realized really quickly that when people walked by each other in the hallways and they mumbled things under their breath, that built tension on her campus. But when they sat face to face and they got to know each other's names and they got to know each other's stories, that this actually reduced tension. So she, she started these interfaith dialogue sessions on campus and it worked really well. And she said that it worked because people were willing to show up. You know, people were willing to stay at the table. There are all sorts of challenges in the world. And as long as we are face to face and in dialogue and, and humanizing one another in that process, there is a hope that we can come up with a solution. But when we walk away from the table, the hope walks away with us. You know, and so my, my question when I hear that story is when things get difficult, 
are we willing to stay at the table? Michael, I'm reminded in our second book, we shared a story of a man uh, who's become a dear, dear friend of ours. Uh, yeah, long story, but Tom and I had, had had some stories published in Chicken Soup for the Soul books uh, yeah. separately, separately. And we each received a message from a man uh, uh, who was from living in Saudi Arabia, Muslim, and who had read our stories and liked them. And one day we're together and Tom says to me, I got a message from this man from Saudi Arabia about this story that I had written. And I said, what's his name? (laughs) And he said the name. And I said, I've got a message from him too. He had read one of my stories and he really liked it. And, you know, as he had liked Tom's and it had moved him. We, we, first of all, we just couldn't believe this, that it, that it worked that way, that he had, this man had no idea we had, we were partners in this, in this mission, that we, that we worked together. And um, so we reached out to him uh, via email and introduced ourselves and said, you won't believe this, but, but you know, the, we, we know one another and we work together every day. And he wrote back to us and it just formed this bond with him. And he poured out, you know, the fact that uh, his, his, the depth of his pain at losing his father uh, had recently lost his father. And then he had recently lost um, his little daughter who was, who was, I think a year old and she had a disease, uh, something she'd been born with. And then she died. And we, when he told us this, we said, would you like to talk? about it. And he said, yes. And we arranged a phone call, which was no easy feat, considering the time differences and, you know, and, and connecting with him and, you know, halfway around the world. But we did it. During the conversation, he broke down into just sobs of pain and release from what he was feeling about the death of his father and of his young daughter. And more than half of that conversation together, that phone call together was spent with him simply sobbing. And it, it, it formed a powerful connection that he was willing to be that vulnerable with us, whom he didn't even really know. As the years went by, uh, he continued to reach out. And as it turned out, he lost two more children hmm. uh, at a very young age, one just a day old another one a few a few months old and uh, you know our hearts just broke for him we had another phone call with him at, at one point and one of the things that we were so impressed with is that he would reach out to us on every one of our holidays here in in the US whether it was christmas or easter or uh the 4th of july um you know or maybe memorial day uh, labor day but the most touching was when he reached out on September 11th one year and just said how heartbroken he was at what had happened in our country on that day and how sorry he was that, that so much death and occurred and so much hatred um, existed. And, you know, and, and we continue now to hear from him. And there are always words of, you know, wishing his, him well, uh, us well on a holiday or something in our lives. When he hears of some bad news happening in the U.S., he'll write to us and, you know, how, how are we doing? How are we feeling about it? We try to do the same thing and reach out to him whenever we can just to see how things are going with him, you know, uh, with Ramadan and, you know, and other special occasions in the Muslim world. 
And oh my gosh, it's one of the relationships we are most proud of. Um, hmm. To be able to have this connection with someone who lives in a in such a different part of the world. One of the things when we've talked about this story that we have shared is that we have found something in common with him. And here he is, you know, he's from a different country, a different culture, a different religion, you know, just, you know, and, and also speaks a different, can speak a different language. And yet the, the grief or the death or the grief of a father at losing his children is the same no matter where we live, no matter the yeah, culture. Yeah, that's a universal, universal human experience. Exactly. The same with losing a father, parent. And that's where we try to focus. What is it that we share as humans that we all experience to start there? Because it helps us to understand maybe where there are differences and why there are differences and how we react to them. When we base our worldview and our understanding off of the headlines and off labels and off preconceived notions, our, our mind fills in a lot of blanks. You know, we'll hear these labels and our mind fills in all of these blanks. But when we have a human encounter and when we can attach that to a face and a name uh, and a personal experience and a, and a narrative, that that broadens our understanding of that really flat dynamic. You know, it fills it out. It weaves a, a richer tapestry, and we understand uh, more about the complexities and the nuances of the world. And that's that's where individual relationship becomes really powerful in my mind. Oh, I can't wait to ask you this question. Then yeah. uh, we've started this relationship with a man all the way around the world, and we have personalized it. In fact, one of the moments that I found to be uh, another moment that was so touching was when he sent us a photo of one of his daughters who is still living and, and it was on her birthday and he, and she was blowing out the candles on her cake and she's at that point maybe she was 11 or 12 but then the family members who uh, were all surrounded surrounding the cake and it just it did personalize it for us it made it all of the hard work that we had invested you know in him and his family really had paid off because we took our relationship to a whole new new place and a new level. So so in this world right now where where social media is what it is, how how do we personalize it? I mean, you've given us a model. You know, it's those personal comments, it's those small little touches. It's it's knowing that I, I don't celebrate Ramadan, but he does and it's no it doesn't hurt me to say happy Ramadan. You know, you think about how wonderful it is when when he wishes you Merry Christmas. It, it is not his holiday, but he recognizes that it's important to you. And so he'll say something. Uh, your pain is not his pain, but he can recognize that it's important to you. And so he says something. I think as human beings, we have this strong desire to be seen and heard and valued. It becomes an intentional practice to see what little comment can I make to the store clerk to humanize that interaction? Not just I'm going to swipe my card and look down at my toes while I'm doing it, but um, you know maybe the guy in back of me in line has popsicles and I can look at him and say, oh man, those are my favorite popsicles. Um, wh whatever it is, 
guy has a mask with the Packers on it. And uh, I don't follow sports at all, but I heard that the Green Bay Packers got shellacked at their last game. So I can say, oof, man, that was a tough game, wasn't it? And then I hope he doesn't talk any more about the Packers because I would quickly (laughs) display my ignorance. But, But I think it has to become an intentional exercise in looking for those opportunities for connection. Uh, because otherwise they'll escape us. And it's those little bits of energy, those little exchanges that really become rich uh, when we look at our lives. Yeah. And I, I, you know, as Tom tells a story about the picture, the photo of uh, his daughter blowing out her birthday candles to just to think that again, halfway around the world in a very different culture, children are doing the very same thing that children do here. And, yeah, it looks familiar. Uh, that unites us. It absolutely does. And we all can can find joy and, and just wonder, you know, in the delight of a child on uh, on her birthday. And um, that, boy, that does unite us. It, it, it really does. So in, in light of, of what we're just talking about, how does the work you do and these connections that you make inform your outlook for the future of this world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. I actually had this conversation with someone the other day. If my work is meant to encourage, my work is meant to inspire hope. Uh, But there are days when I struggle to get there myself, you know? And so again, that has to become an intentional exercise. Uh, It's like a gratitude journal. You have to remind yourself again and again and again to be grateful. Uh, When I tune into the news, uh, especially certain news sources, I get really pessimistic. I really lose hope fast. It sounds like the sky is falling and it's going to catch up with us any minute. But when I tune out of that news. Now, I still keep myself informed, but I'll do it in doses and I'll do it with a curated bunch of sources. When I tune out of that typical news cycle and instead I spend my time engaging with the community, engaging with human beings, doing these interviews, finding people who believe something better is possible and folks who are looking for creative solutions to our most challenging problems. When I do that, it gives me hope and it gives me courage to keep going. And it inspires me that, yeah, we can find a way forward. And in fact, as we travel around the country, we find folks who are looking for creative solutions to all of these things around immigration, around race, around climate change, around poverty and and housing security. There are remarkable people doing amazing work and it works. And what what we want to do is amplify those and say, you know what, there is a way we can do do this. There is a way that we can scale this up. There is a way that we can solve these challenges that we in some ways have have created for ourselves in other ways have been put upon us, but none of it is hopeless. And I really find that encouragement by engaging with people who are involved in the solutions. Gandhi was famous for having said, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think another one of our favorite stories in in your book was your interaction with Ella Gandhi, his granddaughter. 
Uh, could you talk about that interaction? And, and if you have your book handy, we'd even love for you to read some of that story because I think it would be such a touching way to end our conversation today. Ila Gandhi wrote the foreword to my first book. There was a certain point where the exhibit for that book was going to be at my alma mater at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And as we were visioning what programming might look like around that, we said to each other, well, wouldn't it be fun if Ila Gandhi would come over from South Africa to, to do some programming with us? And we, we chuckled at the absurdity of it. And then we said, well, maybe we should ask her. Great, your, your, your odds are greatly improved by asking. And so we asked her and she said yes. And uh, so for a few glorious days, I got to sort of bask in her wisdom and spend time with her. And I think she, she befriended my dad, which was, which was lovely. They're about the same age. And then at one point I got to interview her. We got to sit in a recording booth and, and have a conversation that was quieter and more personal than the public stuff we were doing. And I just want to read a couple of passages that I found interesting out of that interview. And she spoke of her grandfather's choice to live simply. Now, when, when Hila talks about Gandhi, she says Gandhi G, which is sort of an endearing, like Uncle Gandhi sort yeah. of way to, to refer to him. Uh, she said one of the issues that confronted Gandhi G was the idea that poverty uh, or the idea of poverty and the exploitation of human beings by other human beings. He felt that if we cut down on our needs and live a simple life, then the resources of the world can be shared better. And we when we talked about peace, Ela spoke about nonviolence as a tool for resisting the injustices of the world. And she said, peace becomes syn synonymous to building a culture of nonviolence. It's about how you relate to each other. It's about getting to learn how to deal with issues. Because when there's two people, there's bound to be differences of opinion. When you have two people, you can't, you can't all have the same views. It's not possible. It's not even desirable. Everyone has different views and different talents. You put them together and you can get a rich tapestry, but when you don't put them together, you have different threads that could be at war. She said, for me, the biggest issue is for as many people as possible to take on the responsibility of promoting nonviolent ways of dealing with conflict. You take each challenge, you begin to tackle it as it comes. It's not an easy road, but nothing is easy. Nothing that is good and worth conquering is easy. And we have to take the challenge and we have to be committed to nonviolence. It's not a strategy for a particular period, but it's a way of life. And if I can add one more thing, I, I closed the interview. I looked at my watch uh, and, and this is how I wrote it in the book. I was reluctant to bring the interview to an end, but both of our schedules required it. And I wondered aloud if she could close by sharing something that perhaps people misunderstood about her grandfather. And Ela smiled and she said, people thought Gandhi G was born a leader, but he wasn't. It took him years of work learning to lead in South Africa before he ever went on to do his work in India. And I think for me, that's important because we, we sometimes put people on a pedestal. You know, I, I know I do that with Gandhi. He was an imperfect human being. He had his own issues, but we think, oh, if only I was like Gandhi. But in fact, sometimes I think we give away our power to these role models. We give our way, our, away our power to celebrities and political leaders and wait for them to do a thing. But in fact, this is all of our work. 
you know, and we can all accomplish amazing things. If we put our mind to it, we can all do small things with great energy in our own communities. Powerful words. <laughs> it's the work of all of us to find this, this peace, to find and, and model this love that can begin to heal us and help yeah. us. It's a choice, as yeah, you mentioned it, earlier. It is a choice. And we uh, are just so impressed with this journey you've been on, uh, with the, the people you've inter interviewed, those who are might be well-known, and those who have not know, been known before. But everyone has a story. Everyone has something to say, to share, and we can learn from them. You've provided a vehicle for that. And uh, we want to thank you for it. And we, we appreciate so much you being with us today and sharing part of this journey with us and with, and with our listeners. We're all richer for it. So thank you, John. Yeah, it's a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Tom, for, for giving me the chance. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you. We wish you well on your continued success. Yeah, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Our conversation with John was so inspiring. He, as Michael mentioned in our introduction, is so much about the same work that we're involved in, day in and day out, of listening to people's stories, trying to meet people with compassion and empathy and kindness, to, in his language, stay at the table. That's a phrase that's going to continue to stick with us going forward. How can we stay at the table, especially with people who may see the world differently than we do. Yeah, we want to encourage you uh, to buy his book, Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America, because John Noltner um, tells some fantastic stories that we know will touch you as they have uh, touched us. And speaking of books, we, we want to remind you that our next book, our third book together, called Listening 2 by 2 A New Paradigm for Leaders, That's When the Magic Happens, is going to be available, it's going to be published and be available in January 2022. We hope to soon have um, information out about how you can pre-order the book, and um, we hope that you'll purchase it and to support our work because all the proceeds go towards someone to tell it to and the listening teaching training work that we do to help people to be heard through compassionate listening and to enable people to listen better and more compassionately and empathetically we'll be telling you more about that as the weeks go by but uh, we hope you'll consider buying it so again thank you for being with us today we hope it's been enjoyable until we listen again.